I, I want to talk this morning about the glory of the Lord and the ultimate goal in our lives is not to make a success of our life in any one particular way, but the ultimate goal of our life is to manifest the glory of God, to give God glory. That is the ultimate goal of everything else that we do, has that ultimate goal toward it. And so wherever we are now in our walk with the Lord, we want to move toward a greater manifestation of the glory of God in our lives. It doesn't really matter in one sense where you're at. What matters is the direction that you're moving in. And so we can be at the beginning of our Christian life, we can be recovering from some kind of disaster, or we can be doing really well. The same principle applies. We want to move forward toward a greater manifestation of God's glory in our lives. We want to shift from where we are to where we want to be. We want a supernatural thing to happen in our lives, and obviously that can only come from the Holy Spirit. We have to say yes, but only the Holy Spirit can empower us. We have a desperate need every day for the presence and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, what is the glory of God? If the ultimate goal of our life is to give God glory and manifest His glory in our lives, what is the glory of God? How do we encounter the glory of God today? What does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? So to answer those questions, we have to start back in the Old Testament, where the Hebrew word for glory is the word kavoth. And the meaning of the word is a heaviness or weight. It came to mean an honor or a splendor or wealth. And in the Old Testament, the main use of the word is in reference to God, because after all, who has more honor or substance or splendor than God himself? And so we see in Exodus the glory of the Lord appearing, first of all, in the midst of the cloud and fire, which led the people through the desert. And then that cloud came to rest at Mount Sinai, and Moses saw the glory of God in the midst of the cloud there in Exodus 24. And he witnessed the glory of the Lord in a very unusual and intimate way. Then after that, uh, the glory of God appeared in the tabernacle, in the tent that they set up in the desert. Uh, and uh, later in the temple. And then the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel it had uh, extraordinary experiences of God in which they witnessed the manifestation of the glory of God. But the concept of the glory of God is not just a physical miraculous manifestation. It's something deeper in the Bible, that something that's equated with the very character of God so that the psalmist cries out, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let the character of who you are be expressed over all the earth. And again, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples, Psalm 96. And the prophet Isaiah says that a day will come when the glory of the Lord is going to rise upon the people of God and the nations of the earth will be drawn to its light. That's Isaiah chapter 60. And Isaiah also speaks of a day when a voice would come crying in the wilderness, which we recognize in the New Testament to be John the Baptist, making the way for the Lord. And on that day that the voice comes crying in the wilderness, Isaiah said, 
the glory of the Lord would be revealed. So the glory of the Lord was there in the Old Testament in various supernatural manifestations, but it was more than that. The glory was acquainted with the character of God and the desire of the Old Testament writers and worshipers of God was that the character and glory of God be manifest in all the earth. And then Isaiah picks it all up and prophesies that a special manifestation of the glory of God is coming. And all of this, uh, summarizing the Old Testament in four or five minutes, whatever, all of this leads us into the first chapter of the Gospel of John, where in verse 14, it makes this statement. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, Isaiah prophesied the glory of the Lord will be manifest, and the glory of the Lord now has come and is manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when John makes this statement, the word became flesh and dwell among us, and we have seen his glory, he's actually thinking of Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Why do I know that? It's because John says, I've seen the glory. Now, in the whole of the Old Testament, nobody saw the glory the way that Moses did. If you if you asked a Jewish person at the time of Christ, who is it that saw the glory? They would say, Moses. Where did he see the glory? On top of Mount Sinai. Nobody saw the glory of God in that way that Moses did, where the glory passed by and he had to hide his face and so on. But John now declares that I've seen it too. And he describes Jesus in very specific terms. He is full of grace and truth. Now, going back to Mount Sinai, when Moses had that encounter with the glory of God, the Lord revealed himself to Moses as the one who abounds in love and faithfulness. And when you take those two Hebrew words for love and faithfulness and translate them over into Greek, they become grace and truth. So John is thinking of Moses going up Mount Sinai and he encounters God there in a manifestation of the glory of God that's so powerful that he had to hide his face because no one could see God and live. And then John, centuries and centuries later, says, I also seen the glory. And the glory also is manifested in grace and truth, just like it was on top of Mount Sinai. Now, uh, John... In four verses later, he says, no one has ever seen God. Now, he's thinking of Moses on Mount Sinai. You can't see God and live. But, he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, has made him known or visibly seen. So what couldn't be seen on Mount Sinai is now visible. So this unprecedented encounter of Moses with God on Mount Sinai, no one had ever had an encounter with God like that. And in that encounter of Moses with the glory of God on Mount Sinai, the covenant was forged, the people of God were set apart. Somehow, somehow, John is saying in chapter 1 of his gospel, somehow this is all being repeated. Think for a minute about the significance of what he's saying. We've seen the glory. What is the glory? The glory is the kavod, that's the manifest presence, the weight, the splendor of Almighty God that Moses witnessed in Mount Sinai. 
And so, so you ask the question, how could John have seen this glory when he wasn't on Mount Sinai and saw no cloud? Well, the answer is very clear. It's because he saw Jesus. How could anyone, I don't know how anyone in their right mind could argue that the Bible does not teach the divinity of Jesus Christ. Right here, he's saying, he's saying that what Moses saw when he encountered Yahweh on Mount Sinai, I have seen in the person of Jesus Christ, the same reality. The glory which was manifest in a cloud that nobody uh, could approach, nobody could even go up the mountain, except for Moses on pain of death, this glory now has been made flesh. This God who you couldn't come within miles of, or you die, surrounded by the cloud of glory, this God turns up on earth, walking the streets of Jerusalem. You can see the glory. Not only that, you can touch the glory. The glory is touching people back. He's letting even the unclean and the lepers reach out to him, and instead of their uncleanness defiling him, his health and wholeness is cleansing and making them whole. And then John says even more in this statement. He says, the word dwelt among us. Now, that word dwelt is a loaded word in the Bible. It goes back to a Hebrew word which refers to one thing and one thing only, which is God dwelling in the tabernacle. Remember, the glory of God was on Mount Sinai, but it also was on that tent that Moses set up, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and the glory was manifest in that place so that the the, uh, glory cloud was upon it by day, the pillar of fire by night, and people couldn't go in or approach it because of the glory that was there, and only one man once a year, that was the high priest, could enter that place um, and still live. Uh, that That is what the dwelling place of God refers to in the Old Testament. And now John says, the word dwelt among us, the, the word tabernacled among us. If you turn the Hebrew verb into a noun, you get a word Shekinah, which is the glory cloud in which God dwells. And what John is saying here in the first chapter of his gospel is that this glory cloud, which once was manifest on top of Mount Sinai and then was manifest in the tabernacle and later on in Solomon's temple, now this very glory cloud is walking the streets of Jerusalem. But the extraordinary thing is the religious people are so blind they can't see it. I mean, we went to, we were in Edmonton last um, September, and uh, after finishing with the church there, we drove to uh, Jasper, and you have to drive for several hours, and you're wondering, when are you going to see the mountains? When are you going to see the mountains? And so on. Then all of a sudden, you know, there they are. You can you turn a corner or come over a hill or whatever, and you can see the Rockies starting to rise up. And uh, and uh, it's it's just such a powerful sight. Uh, well, here was the Shekinah glory that was on top of Mount Sinai, which is more powerful manifestation uh, than even the Rocky Mountains, and yet. The people, the religious people, were so blind, they couldn't see a thing. 
All they could see was a preacher they disagreed with. So in summary, in John chapter 1, given the Old Testament background, now I'm connecting it in with John chapter 1 in the New Testament, and I'm connecting the glory of God with Jesus. And in this, John is saying three things. Number one, the God who appeared on Mount Sinai has now appeared in the flesh in the person of Jesus. Number two, the entire character of God revealed on Mount Sinai, the mercy and faithfulness, the covenant love of God are embodied in the person of Jesus. And number three, the Shekinah glory of God that was on Mount Sinai and in the cloud, wherever it went, was manifest in the person of Jesus. So again, the question is, why couldn't they see this glory when, like the Rocky Mountains, it was right there in front of them? Why couldn't they see it when it was right in front of them? Well, Paul explains that for us over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses will come up on the screen. And I just want to start by reading uh, uh, verses 7 to 10 in that chapter and listen for uh, the, the word glory. So Paul says, if, now if the ministry of death carved in letters and stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze, gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, would not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. In the, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. If what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more what, will what is permanent have glory? So Paul, here in writing these words, has glory on his, his mind. The glory of Moses of Mount Sinai, it turns out, was Nothing compared to this new glory that's manifest in the person of Jesus. So, why the Jews couldn't see, why the religious people couldn't see the glory in front of them is explained starting at verse 16, still in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 16 reads, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the problem the Jewish people had was they could not understand the true meaning of the law. So their hearts were so blinded to everything that Moses and the prophets had said about Jesus, because Jesus was prophesied all the way through the Old Testament. Their hearts were blinded to it because they did not have the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's explaining this to the Corinthians. And he takes us back to this same chapter Exodus 34, where Moses goes up the mountain, that John chapter 1 goes back to. And the same idea, the same theme, which is the manifestation of the glory of God on Mount Sinai. Because Exodus 34 says that whenever Moses went into the presence of the glory, um, he removed his veil till he came out. And then when he came out, he had to put a veil on his face because the glory of God was so powerful that people could not see it or they shouldn't see it because it reflected the holiness of God. And so Moses puts this veil on. So Paul is using the example of this veil that Moses had to wear, which was, in effect, a barrier between the people and God himself. He says they still have a veil which prevents them from seeing the glory. 
That is the glory. It's not the glory of Mount Sinai anymore. Now it's the glory of Jesus. But he says here, whenever a person turns to the Lord, when you enter the presence of the Lord, when you're saved and encounter Jesus, he says the veil is removed. And the next verse, he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So he explains that the God who revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai now manifests himself to believers as the Holy Spirit, the Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Verse 16, now when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is Yahweh. That's God. And that's that. That's God that Moses went into and had to put the veil on his face. And now he says, when one turns... He says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, but the Lord is the Spirit. What he's saying is that the God who manifested himself as God the Father, Yahweh, on Mount Sinai, which no one can see and live, now is manifesting himself, the same Lord is manifesting himself as the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's the Spirit who takes this veil away and allows us to understand who Jesus is. And without the presence of the Holy Spirit, a person cannot understand who Jesus is. You cannot become, you cannot become a Christian without the Holy Spirit coming into your heart and taking the blindness away. So, At Mount Sinai, the glory of God was manifested in the person of God the Father. We know that because you can't see God and live. God the Father does not manifest himself uh, in visible form. Uh, But we saw from John's gospel that the glory of God that was manifest in Mount Sinai is now walking around the streets of Jerusalem manifest in God the Son. And now Paul tells us in Christian believers, the same glory of God is manifested in the person of the Holy Spirit as he comes, takes the veil away, and enables us to behold the glory of God. So the Bible teaches the Trinity. It's all through the Trinity, even though the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. It's all through the book of Revelation, which is another story. But it's certainly right here in um, our study of glory. The, the, and so, and where the glory of God comes, now where the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, he says, there is freedom. So where the Holy Spirit comes and brings the glory, us into the glory of God, the next thing that happens is he brings us into freedom. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from the condemnation of the law. Freedom to live life as it is meant to be lived. Freedom to be in fellowship with the living God. So the release of the Spirit is the manifestation of the glory of God in our lives. And when the glory of God is released in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit fills us, empowers us, and sets us free. So we we have to understand the empowering and work of the Holy Spirit as something that goes far beyond charismatic gifts and manifestations. Much as we believe in the gifts of the Spirit being an operation, that is only the tip of the iceberg of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's only scratching the surface of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because... 
Because when the glory of God comes, when the Spirit of God comes into your heart and into mine um, and into our hearts together as God's people, God's purpose is more than just prophecies and spiritual gifts. God's purpose is actually to recreate us as an entirely new people. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, bringing us together into freedom and into a family of God. That's an amazing thing about the family of God, that you can go to the other side of the world and be with Christians who don't talk like you or look like you or anything else, but you have far more in common with them than your next-door neighbor who may look exactly like you and talk exactly like you. And every one of us who's a Christian here knows that's the truth. We are... There is, it's, as my friend John Babu from Hyderabad, India, used to say, it's not a culture of the East or a culture of the West. There's two cultures in this world, the culture of the kingdom of God and the culture of the kingdom of darkness. The culture of the kingdom of darkness manifests itself all over the world in different ways, but we live as believers in the culture of the kingdom of God. And we are all part of the family of God because the Holy Spirit has set us free, and release the glory of God in our lives. I hope that's encouraging to you. (laughs) And it's a process. And, you know, the process of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives will never be complete until we see Jesus face to face. Yes, we're all far from perfect. I will say to people, you know, who complain about church, well, if you ever do find the perfect church you're looking for, you'll wreck it as soon as you join it. So, you know, uh, we're, we're imperfect people. All of us are. But nevertheless, we need to take a hold of what the Bible says. In Christ, we're a new creation. The Holy Spirit has come to us. His purpose is to bring us into the glory of God. The old person has died. The new person has come. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to live a whole new life in Christ. And so verse 18, still in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he says, and we all with unveiled face. Now here's the difference between Moses and Christian believers. Because Moses took the veil off when he went into the presence of God, then he put it back on again. But Paul here tells us that when any Christian believer encounters the presence of the Lord, the veil is removed. And when he says removed, it's a once and for all expression in the Greek language. When you enter the presence of the Lord, when you come to know Christ, if you know him genuinely, that is a permanent once and for all change in your life. You'll never leave the glory of God. You'll never leave the presence of the Lord Jesus in your life. That's the assurance that he gives us. But interestingly, he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, he he says that It's not just as it was back then, where first it was Moses and then it was only the high priest once a year. But now he says it's we all. We all. That's every single one of us 
has the ability and invitation to enter the glory of God. And we do so with unveiled face. So, uh, and, and what happens then is, he says, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. As we enter the presence of God with unveiled face, once and for all, the veil has been taken away, we are beholding the glory of God, the glory of the Lord. Now this, if, if, if the unveiled part refers to a, a once and for all thing that's happened when we came to know Christ first, the beholding part is a continuous present idea. So we are intended to live in a continuous manifestation of the glory of God, in a continuous experience of the grace of God. It's a, it's the process, it's the journey of our life with Christ. And, uh, and he says beholding, when he says beholding, it, the picture here is somebody looking at an image in a mirror. So, and for ancient writers, the mirror was a figure of speech used of gaining, not just seeing yourself physically, but of gaining a deeper understanding. And James talks about it. If you look in a mirror and forget what you look like, he's talking about if you look in a mirror and don't gain understanding of who you are, then you'll never change. But he says we're beholding. We are gaining deeper understanding as we enter the glory of God in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So every day, just like you may get up in the morning and look in the mirror, the older I get, the less pleasant experience it is, but every day we can behold Jesus. Every day we can experience His grace, His love, His mercy, and uh, it, as the song says, it remains, it keeps on and on and actually increases the older we get. And so we are in a journey together, you and me, which is intended to be further and further into the glory, further and further into the spirit, further and further into a transformed life, further and further into freedom. The more we behold Christ, the more clarity we get about God. The closer we are to God, the more we can exercise our freedom in God. As we think about Christ, as we pray to Christ, as we read about Christ in the Bible, as our lives become more focused on Christ, our understanding increases, our knowledge grows, our experience of the glory and of the Holy Spirit grows stronger and stronger until the day we will enter it once and for all. And here's the result of it, verse 18. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The glory has come to us. The glory is within us, believe it or not. The image into which we're being transformed by the Spirit is Christ, who is the perfect image of God. We are being transformed. We are beholding as a process and we are being transformed, that's the same idea, present, continuous, ongoing activity, daily we are being transformed. It isn't just something that happens once, it's a daily process, it's a daily journey toward Christ. 
It's the transformation of our inner person. Though our outward self is wasting away, Paul says, our inner self is being renewed. And again, it doesn't matter where you're at. It's that you are moving ahead on the journey. I often talk about the day that I was... Years ago, I was very, very discouraged, and I was walking down our driveway, taking the garbage out, and I thought to myself, partway down, I don't even know if I can get to the end of the driveway or not. And and I just felt God say to me, in that still small voice, he said, put one foot ahead of another. And somehow, I made it. And things gradually, over a period of time, began to get better. If you're in a predicament this morning, if you're discouraged this morning, if you look at your life and think, I don't, I'm not where I want to be, just keep moving forward. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. That's fruitless. Just ask the Lord for strength to move forward. And moving forward is as if Christ is in front of you. You're beholding him, right? That's the picture here. You're looking at him. Your eyes are on him. And you're saying, Jesus, please just draw me closer to yourself. His grace has a way of reaching out into the messes of our lives and the predicaments we get ourselves into and our discouragements and downfalls and depressions and all the rest of it. And he just pulls us toward himself. That's the grace of God, isn't it? We 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 make such a fundamental mistake as Christians that we think that we realize we're saved by grace, but we think that our journeying toward Christ, which we theologically call sanctification, is somehow something we have to do ourselves. Well, I've got news for you. The gifts of the Spirit are so- sovereign manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We can't make up a prophecy. Well, you can, but it won't be a real prophecy. Um, so they're sovereign. But the fruit of the Spirit, that's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, tenderness, and so on, gentleness, kindness, the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. So you can't create character in yourself any more than you can manufacture a supernatural gift of prophecy. Both are gifts of the Spirit. Justification is a gift of God. Sanctification is a gift of God. Our role in it is just to say, yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, regardless of where I am today, I'm saying yes to you. Take me and move me further ahead into the glory. Otherwise, the Christian life becomes legalism. And we wind up telling people, you've got to do this, do that, and do the next thing. And people get discouraged because they can't do it. And they start comparing themselves to other people. Unfortunately, there are some people around who hold themselves up as the greatest example of virtue and think everybody else has to be like them. Well, that's that's not grace. That's not grace. We want to be a people who live by grace. And and a people who live by grace are people who know they're dependent on the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, no matter what situation we're in, Jesus loves us. And his grace is there for us, and he just wants us to move forward. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, coming down to the end. Remember what John told us. He says he saw the glory of God in Jesus. But think for a minute. Where was the greatest manifestation of the glory of God in Jesus? It wasn't in all those extraordinary miracles that he did, which were amazing. But the greatest manifestation of the glory was when he hung on the cross for our sins 
And that's where he brought us, brought, bought us the freedom that we now have by the Holy Spirit. So we can go looking for the glory as Christians, those of us who classify ourselves as charismatic, believe in supernatural manifestations, gifts of the Spirit, and so on. We can, we can go on bunny trails sometimes. And so, sometimes we can wish we saw a visible cloud descending, just like Moses saw. But actually, the glory that God's really looking for is the glory of God, the glory of Christ in our inner man and inner woman. It's the image of Christ. It's the likeness of Christ. It's when we begin to look like Christ, and that glory is manifest not when we're up at the front prophesying away, telling everyone we've got all nine gifts of the Spirit and then a few more on top of that, and are better than anybody else. No, the glory is manifest the same way it was in Jesus when we take up our cross and follow him. When we lay down our lives for those around us, when we receive God's love and give it away. That's the glory of God. That's when the glory of God is manifest. So I, I don't want to discourage you from believing that you might see the Shekinah glory come down upon you one day, that'd be a wonderful thing. But that's actually not primarily what Paul's talking about here. But think about this. Think about this one incredible fact. The glory of God that appeared at Mount Sinai. The glory of God that appeared at the tabernacle. The glory of God that was manifest in Jesus. That glory, the scripture says, now resides in you and me as men and women who follow Jesus. So the presence of God is no longer restricted to one place where one time, once a year, one man only could experience it. The presence of God is now released wherever men and women encounter the gospel of Christ and the power of the Spirit. We are one man, one woman, mobile tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. And the power of God goes with us. The glory of God goes with us. The laying down of our lives, the modeling of Christ and his love goes with us into our workplace, into our place of study, into our neighborhood, so that God releases all of his children to be manifestations of the glory of God, just like It appeared on Mount Sinai, and just like it appeared in the tabernacle, and just like it appeared in Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem. And that's why God can use us, faults and all, to change and affect and impact people's lives. So the glory spills out into this whole wonderful kaleidoscope of the work of the Holy Spirit in all of us. And... As we become more and more like Jesus, that glory will only increase. And one day it will translate us in the twinkling of an eye, the scripture says, into a glorious resurrection body, a body of glory, just like that Jesus has. Until that day, saints, behold him, follow him, take up your cross, walk in his love, and give it away, and know this, that if you do, the glory will come. Well, Dan, could you just come up, take up your instrument of great glory, and let me just lead you in a word of prayer.
Lord, we, each of us, struggle with our identity in Christ, uh, how we manifest the glory of God, how we represent Christ in this world. We're really good at looking and picking fault with ourselves. Lord, I pray we look at ourselves less and look at Jesus more. And Jesus, I thank you that you met me and still meet me in the imperfection and fallenness of who I am. And you still extend your grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. You still bring me into your glory. You still fill me with your spirit and your glory so that even in the midst of an imperfect man like me, your glory is manifest. And you can use me to help people to make a difference in this world. Lord, I pray you'd encourage each one of us where we believe the lie that it's only some big personalities or whatever that are used by you and that we actually are failures. Lord, I pray that you break the power of that lie as we look at Christ and believe that the glory is manifest in us. And I pray, Father, that you would bring mighty encouragement to those here this morning and those that will listen to this in video form. I speak life and the release of your spirit and of your glory into each one. In Jesus' name, amen.